Recovery Elevator, episode 53. And then I think my aha moment was, you know, when I was drinking again, and I'm like, I was just, I knew it was wrong in my head, and I knew I was drunk, and I knew I was trying to kid everybody else, but then I realized I'm just doing this to myself, and I feel like shit. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker, I have been sober for 17 months and one week. On today's podcast, I've got Dawn. She's 46 years old, she's a mother of three, and she's a professional photographer. Now, if you were one of the several, and I'm guessing it's many of you guys who heard that introduction of Dawn, and you're like, wait a second, A, she's a woman, B, she's a mom, C, she's got three kids, and she's also a photographer, I've got nothing in common with Dawn reaching out to my dashboard to hit stop on this podcast right now. Actually, this episode is just for you. The topic of today's podcast is terminal uniqueness, and I want to thank Ty, who edits the podcast, for bringing this topic to my attention. At first, I was like, what is terminal uniqueness? Well, it's very dangerous, and I know this from firsthand experience. Recovery support groups typically contain people from all walks of life. Either you're at NA, NA, basically any 12-step meeting, you may come across people from different social classes, as well as different races and religions. You'll meet people who are young and they're old, rich and poor, and sometimes people in between. There are going to be criminals in the rooms. There's going to be judges. There's going to be street people to royalty. Just about every type of person you can imagine can be found in these 12-step meetings. If you are new to meetings, you may feel for one reason or another that you don't belong and that there's something different about you compared to the people who are there. You may find it hard to relate to the other people in the room. You are feeling uncomfortably different, and it's caused by your sense of total uniqueness. So, what is this total uniqueness, also called terminal uniqueness? And often when I've heard the word terminal, it comes in front of cancer. And if you have terminal cancer, that's not good. This terminal uniqueness nearly led me to my grave in August of 2014. I know firsthand, it's deadly. I've also heard a terminal uniqueness called personal exceptionalism, and I love that. So let's get into what terminal uniqueness actually looks like. Terminal uniqueness is basically a form of denial, and I've broken this down into two branches of denial. The first one is the most deadly. This is the denial where you don't have a drinking problem at all, and you actually never get into the rooms. So we are the lucky ones. Okay, so even though the odds are stacked against us, we make it past the denial phase of our drinking issues, and we make it to the rooms. The second stage of terminal uniqueness or personal exceptionism is when you're in the rooms, and the alcoholic sees their case as somehow so special or so unique that they don't have to do what other alcoholics have to do to get sober and stay sober. In a nutshell, terminal uniqueness prevents us from seeing the similarities rather than the differences. If you've heard me say that before, it's because I've said it many times before. In fact, in the very first or second episode, I was like, look, if you are going to listen to this podcast, do yourself a favor and focus on the similarities and not the differences. Before I go further in this podcast topic, let's keep in mind where the source of this terminal uniqueness come from. Mine comes from a guy named Gary. I've personified my addiction, that voice inside my head that lies to me in my own voice. It's Gary. That basically at every step in the recovery process, Gary tries to convince me that I'm different. For all you rap and hibbity hop enthusiasts out there, 2 Chains has a song called I'm Different. Great song, but in reality, I am no different. Gary, you hear me? I'm no different. 
So this topic does not just pertain to people who are thinking about getting sober, who are dipping their feet in the 12-step recovery group system, looking at the recovery elevator accountability groups. This topic is also for people like myself who are nearly a year and a half of sobriety because I'm always still trying to convince myself that I'm different. Well, that guy Gary is. So if you find yourself at any stage in the recovery process saying things like, I'm not like those people, you know what? I'm very special. My mom even says so. You know what? My case is different. If you say, you know what? I never did that. And I would never even think about doing what that person did. And let's just define who those people are. It's not necessarily people in AA meetings, NA meetings, or 12-step groups. It could be those people in the recovery elevator accountability groups. Those people refers to groups. Your brilliant addiction lying to you in your own voice is saying, yeah, we can do this on our own. We're not like those people. And here are some typical examples. You can say, these people are nothing like me. I've never been to jail, lost my home, lived under a bridge. What can I, a successful accountant, attorney, student, banker, entrepreneur, cook, learn from people like that? You could also say to yourself, you know, I have an individual therapist who studied at Cornell. I think I'm good. I've actually heard this one many times. I'm not a group person. Now, I don't have all the answers, nor do I claim to, but I can tell you right now, if you're not a group person, you're not going to be a sober person. You need to get out of that comfort zone real quick. You could also say, ah, you know what? I live in a small town, and in the AA community, it's, it's just different out here. It's not like a big city. It's, it's just different here. My situation is different. No one understands me there. You might be saying, I'm just not like them. I tried it once, but I'm just not like them. When a lot of people first get in those rooms, they think that nobody else has had the problems that they've had, that their sins are unforgivable, or their circumstances are usually grotesque as the others, and nobody else has had that exact same scenario, so why would they be able to help me? That's common. People sometimes say, you people couldn't possibly help me. I'm too messed up. I've heard, you can never understand what I've been through. I've also heard, I'm not like any of you. I've never lost a job, gone to jail, been homeless. I'm lying when I say I also heard that last one. That was actually me talking circa 2012. But I'll get to more of that in a second. Terminal uniqueness can be extremely dangerous, slash terminal, the morbid sense, in several ways. It allows people to ignore the likely consequences of their actions. It provides a false sense of security. It divides the world into me and them. It means that the individual will be unwilling to believe that treatments that help other people can help them. It leads to the individual thinking that they are either worse than everyone else or that they are better than everyone else. It prevents the individual from seeking help for their problems. It can be a barrier to communication. And here's a big one. Terminal uniqueness leads to feelings of loneliness and desperation slash isolation. That would have been value bomb and number one. Avoid isolation like the plague in recovery. Yeah, your therapist from Cornell, that's just you and one other person in a room and that other person probably isn't an alcoholic. So it's going to be tough to relate to that person. Terminal uniqueness backfires on you big time in two ways. Number one, when you first get into the rooms, I'm nothing like these people. And the second worst way it backfires on you is when you see the people in the room smiling, laughing, and somehow miraculously staying sober, you're also going to tell yourself, nope, I'm nothing like these people. What worked for them, it's not going to work for me. So how do we get past this terminal uniqueness idea? Simply being cognizant of terminal uniqueness is not enough. I've said before, knowledge of terminal uniqueness is not power. Taking action with that knowledge is where the power comes from. 
Terminal uniqueness may be finally cured when the alcoholic surrenders. I'm going to say that again. Surrenders to the notion that they are no different and that their problem and more importantly, their solution is the same as everyone else in recovery. Here's an interesting definition of surrender. Moving to the winning side. Think about that one for a second. That bulky discman sounded like a great idea to run with till that iPod came out. I think in the episode range 15 to 25, I interview a man named James and his entire recovery foundation is based on surrender. And you see it in the accountability groups. He never forgets that. And he's been sober for a long time. So after interviewing 56 people now, I do feel like I can stand on a leg when I say we're no different. Myself included, we are no different. All these stories, they're the same. They're beautiful. They're remarkable. They're courageous. But I don't want to disappoint listeners who keep coming back to hear these new, crazy, exciting stories. Episode 55, 56, 57, those stories, they're all going to be the same. So I mentioned earlier, I walked into the rooms of AA in 2012 after being sober for nearly 2.5 years. And after the meeting, I was ecstatic. I was so happy. I walked out, probably threw my hands in the air, jumped up, clicked my heels, started snapping with my fingers, whistling a tune, because I realized something. I realized I wasn't an alcoholic. I heard stories in the room, and just like I read before, I said, these people are nothing like me. I've never been to jail, never lost my home, I've never been bankrupt, I've never lived under a bridge, never been divorced, I haven't had all this stuff. So my smarts calculated 2 plus 2 equals 4. However, I've learned many times in recovery, with much humility, that 2 plus 2 equals Lithuania. Yeah, it's not even a number. It's not even a number like 6.8, where you're like, wait, 2.2 into 6.8, okay, I, I times it by 3, the square root of the fraction, I, and you could probably like work your way out of that problem, but 2 plus 2 in recovery is Lithuania. Who would have thought? So after 2.5 years of sobriety, I drank, I think it was two days after that meeting. Where I'm at right now at the time of this recording is in a position where I constantly have to tell myself again, Gary, we're no different, is just that. I'm not any different. So keep that open mind and avoid that terminal uniqueness when listening to Don. So Don, how are you? Good. Fantastic. How long have you been sober, Don? I have been sober for six months. Two weeks, two days, five hours, three minutes, 47 seconds, according to your app. Yes, you've got the six months in the pocket. Are you going for a year? Yes, I am. I love it. Now, before we get into the interview, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Maybe give me a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are. Are you married? Do you have a family? What do you do for fun? Okay, I am 46 years old. I am married. I have three children, twins that are 15 and a half learning to drive, and then an 11-year-old. I am originally from Denver, Colorado. That is my hometown. And I currently live in Bloomington, Illinois, where I've been for the past 10 years. I have moved around and lived in Washington State on two occasions and Hawaii once. And I am a photographer looking at different ways to differentiate and add value to my business getting into social media and marketing and stuff. So that's what I do. And I love to work out. I love coffee. I love anything with fitness and health. And I'm running my kids around all over the town with all the sports that they do. You said you love coffee. Don, that's one addiction for me. I'm not going to kick. I'm like a three to five cup a day guy. How about you? Yeah. (laughs) I drink too much. I've been trying to 
regulate myself on that recently to see if it'll help my sleep and not drink after two <laughs> in the afternoon. So I don't have all that caffeine in my body. <laughs> yeah, I can actually abide by those rules. Cause same, I have the same thing. I don't drink caffeine past four. But I used to do those rules with alcohol. It's like no drinking before five and oh shit, I'm drunk and it's noon. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Tell me about your elevator and when it hit its bottom and when you got off six months, two weeks ago. Yeah. So tell me about your bottom. What happened? I want to say I had two bottoms. My first bottom was in December of 2014. I had already started to regulate my drinking somewhat because it was causing issues and problems in the family. And then I didn't. We went to uh, Colorado for Christmas, which we do every now and then if we don't go during the summer. And my husband's family are big drinkers. They're German and so forth. So every time you get there, everybody's drinking. So I had said before that I wasn't going to drink. But when I get there, I said to myself, I'm an adult. I should be able to drink. So I went ahead and drank and drank too much that night. And that was kind of the beginning of one of my bottom outs because my kids are upset whenever I drink. And so my son had sent me a text saying, you promised mom that you weren't going to drink. And I did. And then I exchanged some not so nice words with him when I did that. So during that trip, the next two days, I think it was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I promised myself I was going to not drink, when, even when everybody else was drinking. So I was trying to stop myself then, and I would just watch everybody at the holiday gatherings and events and or big drinking events and just feeling jealous and feeling like, why can't I drink? I'm an adult. So I um, went through those two days. Then comes December 26th, and we're at my parents' house, um, my adoptive parents, and my mom is making spaghetti for dinner. And I said to myself, you know what? Basically, fuck this. I'm an adult. I should be able to drink if I want to. My dad offered me wine. So I had two glasses of wine that night. And that was all I had that night. But it definitely affected my kids. They'd seen me in other compromising positions before being drunk and stuff. And they just, they, you know, they're not trusting me and they're upset that I'm not keeping to my word. So my son sent me another email and that just kind of affected me when he sent that and I'm just feeling frustrated like the angel and the devil on my shoulder that I can't be an adult and drink like everybody else. Why, why do I get targeted out and singled out while the rest of the family can do what they want to do? So that rest that evening, I just had a couple, I had water, tea, and just getting upset. It was just building up in my stomach. And that night I go to bed and I'm upset about it. And at this time, I'm also taking Wellbutrin. And while I, I had a really hard time falling asleep that evening, and I was just internalizing and getting upset. So I decided to take a couple more Wellbutrin. And then I was just getting more upset as these thoughts were going through my mind and everything. And so that I just went ahead and dumped a handful of Wellbutrin in my hand, trying to help myself go to sleep. So a couple hours later, I started having all the feelings and I'm going through and I had a, a Wellbutrin overdose where I ended up being in the hospital for two days, going through hallucinations and everything. So that was, my, I guess, my first bottom out. I come out of that even though I to drinking the next day. I made a New Year's resolution of January 2015 that I wasn't going to drink or take any medicine anymore. And I did that good for like three months. And then I started getting that, you know, that feeling like, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, even though that had been in my mind for so many years. Maybe I can drink like normal people. So I was invited to go out in April, I remember, at a restaurant bar area. And I said to myself, I was only going to have two or three drinks and I had three glasses of wine. And I regulated that night, but that was the start of drinking again. So once I started doing that and I had that feeling and then the anxiety and all those things came through, 
I started doing that again. And I did that up until July 11th. I had started drinking vodka again. And I had my aha moment. It was with my son. We were just home for the weekend. And he knew I had been drinking. And I was trying to deny it. Woke up the next morning. And I said, I'm so sick of doing this. I'm sick of being sick and tired. And that was the day that July 12th that I decided that I needed help. And that following Monday, I went to my first AA meeting. Wow, there's so much to touch up on that. And I got to say thank you, Don, because I just wrote down a note that I think will be a question in all of the following interviews I do from here on out. We've all heard of the aha moment. We have our brilliant idea that launches our career. When did you have your oh shit moment when you finally realized you're like, wait, I don't have this under control and I don't think I can control it. Was it then or was it your second bottom? It was my second bottom because I, I mean, I had gone through periods of sobriety. Like when I did cleanses before that, I had gone to Spain to photograph a wedding and that's when my drinking picked up again. And when I was there, because everybody drinks in Spain, I drank a ton with the wedding party and everything. But I kind of thought I, you know, I was by myself and I don't know how I got back to my hotel room sometimes. And that was like a moment where I thought it, but I still, I kept trying to regulate through all the, you know, through the next couple of years and I would go periods of on and off and I think my bottom out, I thought my bottom out was when I overdosed on the Wilbutrin and then drank again. But, and then I think my aha moment was, you know, when I was drinking again and then like, I was just, I knew it was wrong in my head and I knew I was drunk and I knew I was trying to kid everybody else. But then I realized I'm just doing this to myself and I feel like shit and I'm not kidding anybody else. It's my, you know, I want, I just wanted to change. I was so tired of feeling that way. Sick and tired of being sick and tired is a common theme that I hear on this podcast with every interview. The oh shit moment, and I just realized this during your interview, is when the journey starts. Because I had my oh shit moment in Spain. And I agree 100% with you. People drink like fish in Spain, including myself. And my oh shit moment was when I was in a taxi cab thinking I was having a heart attack. Ended up being a panic attack. I get to the hospital. I'm pumping Euro coins into this phone booth where it's like, you know, two bucks for nine seconds, pretty much at those ridiculous phone rates. And I'm telling my mom, I'm like, mom, I can't beat this. I cannot beat this. I can't stop drinking. That was the first time I've ever really got honest with myself, honest with my mom. I think that was in 2007. And so I was an alcoholic for seven, eight years before my oh shit moment happened. God, it's crazy. So thank you, Don, for that. And you know, walk me back six months and two weeks ago. Were you just so sick and tired that you it stuck that time? Yeah, I don't know what it was. I had come across a couple different, you know, online sobriety apps and then came honestly came across your podcast. And I had started to listen to your podcast. I had started to go to AA and I'm not like a total into AA. I go to it here and there. But in the beginning, I went and I was hearing that about the 90s visits in 90 days, although I didn't do that. I think I went a couple times. I was just trying to make myself do something and give it a chance. And I think I've been listening, listening to a couple of your podcasts and got the reinforcement about AA. And that was just kind of the start. And as I started doing that and just doing that step one, you know, admitting that I was powerless over alcohol, I guess that was publicly doing it somewhere and doing it to myself and doing, and then being in your group, I finally made that, that admittance, you know, even even though in the back of my mind I knew I was alcoholic, I never wanted to publicly admit that in those in those kind of forums or anything. So, looking back um, in, in December 2014, I think it was a couple days after Christmas or a couple days before. This is what you said. 
I said to myself, I'm a grown up and I should be able to have a couple drinks. Fast forward to today, when you're looking back, is it pretty clear which voice was talking? Was it Don or was it your addiction trying to rationalize or justify? Definitely the addiction. I mean, it's amazing the clarity that I have now and it's amazing how I can look back all my life seeing that I was an alcoholic and how I tried to be like a normal drinker all that time. So I, it was definitely the addiction talking. One of the scariest moments I've had included Wellbutrin. It was Christmas Eve. I think this was 2008. You know, of course, alcohol is not the problem. According to my medical professional, even though they asked, how much do you drink? I lied right to their face. They're like, let's get you on Wellbutrin. This will solve the problem. I mean, Wellbutrin and alcohol for me was a disastrous combo. It was Christmas Eve. I couldn't stop drinking. I was completely out of whack. That's scary stuff, right, Don? Yeah, it is. It is scary. That's why right now I don't take any medicine, no aspirin, anything. I'm just all about, I just really strongly believe this far into it that it's all, it's natural. I just think our society's messed up pushing all this stuff. And talk to me about your relationship with your kid. You guys had volatile text exchanges through texts. You know, how have relationships changed now that you're sober? You know, my relationship has always been a struggle with my daughter, who's 15. I have twins, a son and a daughter. And the relationship and the communication has improved quite a bit. I mean, I I don't have those outbursts that I used to have, even though I would be trying to numb myself with alcohol based on something going on. Then I'd keep drinking, and then I would get to the point where I couldn't control what I was saying or how I was acting and stuff. And that would cause so much tension and anger and no trusting me. For good reason. So I'm slowly working on trying to build up that trust. My daughter originally thought that I didn't have a drink or she claimed that she thought I didn't have a drink since January of 2015. And one day I was in the car and it just came to me. We were having like some kind of a conversation. She was sharing something with me and I just got emotional. I wanted to have that. I wanted to be totally honest with her because I was with my son. And I said to her, I'm so sorry. I started breaking down and crying. I'm so sorry for all the times that I let you down and that, you know, I wasn't a good mother. And my official sobriety date is July 12th. And, you know, she got, she goes, I thought she didn't drink since January. And I said, well, I did. I, w- I lied to you. So it was hard, you know, and she's still distrusting of me. But I, I know that that's just going to take time. I have to earn that trust back with action. One thing that I've learned in sobriety is I am impatient and I got frustrated when I first quit drinking, and even this time, you're like, hey, world, uh, I, I quit drinking, everything can get better now, like, why aren't my relationships better, why why is my life 100% better, but gosh, we alcoholics were so impatient, and we're so selfish, we want this stuff to happen immediately, and what I've noticed, Don, I mean, six months is not enough time for these relationships that have been affected for years in the past. I'm still seeing the dividends of the decision that I made on September 7th, 2014, and I don't think the dividends are going to stop paying off as long as I stay sober. So do you see you know, more dividends coming your way? I do. I mean, I do in terms of just the reactions and stuff. I still struggle in my relationship and my marriage. That's quite broken, but I guess just learning how to react and not numb the pain and all that kind of stuff. That is a personal dividend, just kind of learning that self-love and learning to be okay with all those feelings. That's been, I guess, one of the biggest gifts of sobriety and learning how to work through that naturally. 
now there's a woman named Pam who lives in Wyoming. I interviewed her maybe six or seven podcasts ago, and it's one of the favorite quotes that she said, one of the final questions, the rapid fire round. She says, you got to go through it to get to it. And the the quote's kind of like a punch in the gut. You're like, ah, oh, there's got to be a shortcut though, right? Like I can go under it, right? I, I can go over it and fly over it or, or, or around it. Uh, but you just got to feel these emotions, but you can't numb them. How do you feel about that? I think that is so true. Yeah, just it's just a good lesson for anybody in life and stuff because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whatever substance you use to feed the pain and all that kind of stuff. You're right. What she said is absolutely correct. When I have a bad day in sobriety, which it happens not as much as it did when I was drinking, I realize now I have the tools in my toolkit to know Look, sometimes the best action with this is no action. I'm just going to sit on this bench and feel like shit, but that's okay because I'm naturally dealing with those emotions and feeling it as it comes in real time, knowing that eventually it's going to get better because I'm getting through it to get to those moments of happiness where sobriety is all worthwhile. It's the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Now, Don, let's switch gears a little bit here. I first met you in the Recovery Elevator Accountability Group, and the very first post I saw from you was a video, and I got to give you props. The honesty in that video, there were tears. It was so courageous to see a video of that because it, it was honest. You were in your car, you were crying, and it was a very vulnerable moment, but that empowered so many people, and I'm not sure if you realized it, but the videos just came pouring out from everybody else in the group. Uh, and, and it was amazing. Tell me about that day. Yeah, that day I've, I've been trying to go to church and find a faith and everything. And I just, it just hit me when I got to the car. I just felt so like kind of hopeless. And it was one of those feelings like normally in the past, I'd want to go run to the store and get wine to not feel that anymore and drink it before I got home. And I was just compelled to share that for some reason, because of all of us that are dealing with this addiction and I felt like sharing. This is how I feel. And I mean, I have to work at it 24 hours at a time, just like everybody else. Sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes hourly minute, even further into sobriety. And now the benefit is that I can recognize that and use the tools, like you said. But yeah, it was, it was kind of empowering for me too, to have shared that and taken that step that helped open some things up for me. Absolutely. I was watching that video and I said to myself, I said, this woman is in pain. She's obviously uncomfortable right now, but it was empowering to me. Watch what you did. You didn't go to the liquor store. You didn't drink. You made a video and you shared it. And the comments underneath that were, oh my God, Don, thank you so much for sharing this. It's the empowering part. So I hope it was beneficial to you because, oh my God, it helped me a ton. You mentioned you're a photographer, right? Yes. And, and do you do a lot of freelance work? Yeah, that's what I do is a lot of freelance work. Like high school seniors, families, headshots, things like that. Okay, and is that is that your main profession? It is, yes. Nice. So is it safe to classify you as an entrepreneur, could it be? Yes, very much so. Okay. I mean I, it's I have other what ideas, I, I think. Yeah, what I what I thought. <laughs> I've had a couple emails from people suggesting, look, you should do a podcast topic on being an alcoholic and an entrepreneur because I, yeah. myself, I'm an entrepreneur. The same thing. Being an alcoholic and an entrepreneur is, at times, is like gasoline and fire because you're at home all day and it's like, well, you know, this, this I could probably edit these uh, these senior portraits with a couple glasses of wine. How challenging has that been? 
it's not bad now because I've learned that, but I used to do that. It was like an easy thing to do. I could sit, I'm at home in my own environment. I'm going to make my salad for lunch. It's okay. The, you know, the people in Europe and all them, they drink wine at lunch. I justified that. And then it just, you know, as an alcoholic, it feels good. You would just keep on going. And, but yeah, if you're that alone feeling, I don't have people that I'm around or in an office environment or connections like that. So I have, I've had to learn and I, and I realize now I would turn to alcohol a lot then. And what I've done now is got involved in more networking groups and that's how I'm forming and formulating those connections and forcing myself to get out and do coffees, which in turn is helping my business more because I'm building those relationships, which when I was drinking, I wasn't doing that. I love it. And in 2014, I struggled incredibly with just time management. When I was bored, I get the things done that I need to do for my own business. And then I had the rest of the day. And my answer to that problem, instead of focusing on the alcohol more, I got a job, right? And I got a job at a crisis facility management place. Basically, so if, if you're depressed or you're suicidal, you go check yourself into this house. And there were days that summer where I didn't know if I was going to go check myself in for a bed or clock in. It was just like a flip of a coin. But go figure, you know, that was not the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem was to focus on the drinking, not the time management. And so I got to give you props. Being an entrepreneur and, and logging six months and two weeks is really hard. And talk to me about what a typical day of dawn looks like. Talk to me about your recovery portfolio from when you wake up to when you go to bed. Oh, yeah. I think the biggest thing that's helped me this year is doing the habit. So I started out this year using one of the habit apps. And for example, I would get up. And I'm still refining that. But one of the things I've implemented this year is making sure I have a cup of green tea every morning. That just gets me going for the day. I know I'm doing something good for my body. And then in the past week and a half, I've been really trying to make sure I do yoga because I just, I'm not good at meditation, sitting there not doing anything. So at least with yoga, it's a form of meditation and doing something. And I feel like that just gets me going and then trying to sit down and have a plan for the day and have goals. I've been trying to make weekly goals or monthly goals. Well, it's only this first month into January, but I feel like I was lacking that before. I, I would like to get better at journaling and writing those down. I just, I feel like I put too much into my day. So I'm still trying to figure that out and still trying to find the balance. I think that's part of the addictive personality is scheduling so much and putting so much on a list. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Sure. And in that it's your recovery portfolio sounds loaded already. But is there anything in there that involves, I heard networking earlier, but is there anything that involves working with other alcoholics? I know we're doing it right now. You know, for a while there, I was an active member of your recovery elevator, which is awesome. I just haven't dabbled in that as much lately because I've been doing so many other things and kind of trying to watch my social media. But that's an awesome, awesome group and connecting with other people. I had gone to AA meetings and I haven't done that all the time. I I'm still not sure what I think about AA and if that's for me. So sometimes like one of the networking groups I've gone to, which is funny, after having gone to AA, is like my BNI uh, Business Networking International. The way they start the meetings almost reminded me in a business sense how an AA meeting starts. You go around and say what your name is, looking for your referrals. But the format, when I first went to it, that's, it was just a parallel format, almost, you know, almost like an AA meeting. That's awesome. Now, Don, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready, Don? Yes, I am. Here we go. Number one, Don, what's your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking, one time I said I was going out at night and I was going to go to a friend's birthday party 
And I remember driving to the CVS to get wine because I always wanted to have more to drink before I got somewhere to have that buzz and everything. And then I ended up, if you know where I live in in the Midwest, there's a lot of cornfields if you get off on the wrong roads. And somehow I ended off on some road and I didn't really know where I was at. And then I was, I couldn't even figure out where I was going back because the corn stalks were so high and I was starting to freak out. And then that I was trying to call my family to let them know like I was on my way home and I threw my phone out the window. Like just tossed it out. I didn't even mean to, but I, you know, I get out of my car and I'm trying to look for my phone and combing through the corn stalks and I have my headlights on and everything and I could not find my phone and I start freaking out because I don't have any way to get a hold of somebody and then I didn't know where I was. I kind of felt lost because I was disoriented on top of, you know, disoriented where I was, being, having been drinking. Somehow I made it home. And the next morning, I was freaking out about my phone because the phone is everything these days, you know. And I I got up early, tried to drive back out to that place. I kind of knew where it was, but could not find the phone for the life of me. So I had to get a phone. But I knew, like, I had some grass, like, on the back of the car. And my son said, what happened? Like, I backed out into this field and getting off the dirt road or whatever. They knew, you know. And I, I had made mistakes. And having lost my phone, I was so embarrassed. I mean, that's one of them. I've had many, but that was one of them. And did you tell the kids your honest answer? No, not, I was still in denial then. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, w- I was on the uh, the filming set of Field of Dreams and driving around in the outfield, and yeah, that'd be, that'd be a tough one to explain. Um, number two, yeah. Dawn, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan is to keep working on my faith journey, my making goals, I think it's good to connect with people. I think I'm still lacking that. I haven't found that perfect connection because not connecting, there is something comforting about connecting with other alcoholics and I am missing that a little bit because I, I haven't gone on the, the group page in a while and I haven't gone to AA meetings. So I think that I think that's important to do no matter what stage you are in, even if you think you're doing okay and you're recovered, it's, there's still something with that. It's like people that get you and understand you. Don, next question. What's your favorite resource in recovery? Uh, Recovery Elevator. It was amazing. Um, Using the app, I use that. I use some of AA. I mean, I kind of use a couple of those things just to get a point of reference to start going somewhere. And Don, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I guess like a lot of people say, taking it 24 hours at a time, especially in the beginning, and just realizing you just got to make it through 24 hours. And Don, what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? That it's not easy, but if you know you've hit that, to get involved in something, to get into a group or an AA group or something along those lines, that it, it is, there is so much positive in connecting with people who can relate and, and share and just you know, be, and trying to find that, being totally honest with yourself. I love it. And before we depart, if you could give listeners your own personalized, you might be an alcoholic if. Let's hear it. And I might have said this on some of the other posts, but you might be an alcoholic. If you buy the little bottles of wine and get them in the plastic version and get them little so that you can drink them and then easily hide them somewhere or throw them in the trash instead of a big bottle, because that's not easy to hide. Yeah, I think I remember reading that one on on a yeah. podcast episode in the prior in the past. I love it. And Don, thank you so much for helping me stay sober. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Paul. Thanks for everything you do. Before we get to the You Might Be an Alcoholic If segment, thank you to Megan for providing those. Let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. You might be an alcoholic if, and you can submit your own personalized you might be an alcoholic ifs to info at recoveryelevator.com. This first one's from Patrick. You might be an alcoholic if you think you're being responsible when you iron your shirt the night before work, but you're so drunk that you fall forward and crumple the ironing board into a twisted metal mess. Love it. This one's from Mick. You might be an alcoholic if you run into your old drinking buddy and you can't remember his name. This next one's from James. You might be an alcoholic if you stop talking mid-sentence because you forget how to talk. This next one's from Gabrielle. You might be an alcoholic if you vomit, and then you go drink to settle your stomach issues. Recovery Elevator, I am excited of what is coming in the next couple weeks and also what's coming up in October. Sneak peek, it is the ultimate Recovery Elevator meetup in Peru. We are going to be doing volunteer work with Peruvian Hearts down in Cusco, in Urubamba, in the Sacred Valley. We're going to be working with orphanages down there, and it is October 6th to the 16th. I believe there are only six or seven spots left, but if you are interested in going down and doing the Inca Trail with a bunch of alcoholics and just hanging out with people like ourselves, this trip is for you. Go to recoveryelevator.com, go to meetups, click on Peru, fill out the RSVP forms. The trip should probably not be more than $2,000, but that does not include flight nor personal travel insurance or personal spending money. But before this epic meetup in Peru, we've got a meetup coming up in less than one week. On Saturday, February 27th, in downtown Seattle, you can go to recoveryelevator.com, click on meetups, find this meetup, RSVP please, so we know who's coming, and be prepared to get outside of your comfort zone. You're going to be asked several uncomfortable questions that I personally want to participate in. I'm not going to be the one asking all the questions because I want to improve. I want to recover myself and meet you guys, get to know you guys. I cannot wait to put faces to names. If you can't make Seattle on February 27th, guess what? We're going south about 1,500 miles to San Francisco on March 5th. Same thing. Go to the website, RSVP, do your thing, and let's hang out together. It's going to be a lot of fun. But please RSVP. We've had one previous meetup and about six people RSVP'd, but we showed up, there were 27 total, which is great, but I also want to have an idea of who's coming. So Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. 